0: Welcome to the Sports Equity Podcast. Here we talk to special guests from teams, brands, and agencies to discuss the value that sports brings to business through current trends and best practices with your host, Brett Weisbrot. Our guest is a graduate of Cornell University with a background in tech and finance, now building something special with Dynamic Pricing Partners. Today, we welcome Jonathan Marks to the program.
1: Thanks, Brett. really appreciate the uh, the time and, and opportunity to talk with you and uh, the audience today.
0: Yeah, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. You know, so for people that don't know uh, Jonathan Marks, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from?
1: Yeah, so uh, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, my, uh, my wife and, and two kids, we've now settled in Long Island City, New York, and, and we've been here now for about uh geez 10 10 plus years uh and so um you know really looking forward to uh sports and and live events coming back and and seeing that unfold here in, in New York City
0: that's great and you know growing up you know when you were young where did you find first find that passion for sports
1: yeah, so I, I remember growing up, my uh, my dad and my grandfather, we'd always go to Cleveland Browns games. Uh, somehow, I ended up becoming a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, though. Uh, and then also Cleveland Indians games. We'd go to you know Jacobs Field, which I'll, I'll always call it the Jake. Uh, probably twenty times every summer, we would we would go there. We had season tickets, and we'd go. You know, nonstop drive to downtown Cleveland and really experience, you know, every aspect of the ballpark and, and just remember those vividly growing up. And then, you know, can't forget about Cleveland Cavaliers, although LeBron did uh, break my, my heart and probably my, my Cavaliers fandom when, when he did leave. So,
0: yeah, it's funny you say that I remember growing up and going to the 97 World Series here and, um, you know, stories I've heard of friends in Cleveland were at the airport, like ready for them to fly back that night. And, uh, you know, the end of game seven kind of changed the tone a little bit.
1: Jose Mesa and, yeah, Indians, Marlins, 97, I, I still remember that. Yeah, yeah, that was tough for sure. So,
0: so you know, graduating high school and going to school, you know, from what I read, you initially went to culinary school. You know, where did that passion derive from?
1: Yeah, so um, I, uh, I, I've always been interested, I think, or at least was back in the day in in cooking and just trying to find a way to, um, you know, do something, I guess, on my feet and not behind a desk. Uh, And so um, worked in restaurants, uh, probably throughout high school, and and realized that I really enjoyed doing that. And so went to culinary school. Once I, I you know, arrived there at the Culinary Institute of America, which is upstate New York in, in Hyde Park, New York, uh, realized that I really like the business aspect of, of hospitality more so than the actual cooking and, and being in a hot kitchen all day. And so I ended up transferring to, to Cornell, um, which was really a great opportunity and, and experience for me to, to build out my business background.
0: And, and that was more of a hospitality and hotel finance type program when you were there?
1: Yeah, so I was in uh, hotel administration and also studied finance and real estate and, and then um, really had a, a, a strong um, passion for, for real estate and you know more so on the hotel side of things and still in the hospitality business. And that's what I thought I would go into um, once I graduated. I learned a ton throughout my time at, at Cornell. Uh, and really had a, an amazing experience. All the professors there, you know, my, my best friends are, are from there. And so, you know, enjoy going back when I can get up there, uh, you know, to this day.
0: Yeah. It's funny. My high school teacher's son is now an offensive lineman there. So, and I sure. even go there over the years. So it's interesting to see generations generations, but you know, Cornell always has that tradition, you know, from your experience there, what would you say was your biggest takeaway?
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, it's really just being passionate about something and uh, learning as much as possible. And, and I think you could see that in every student, whether we were in uh, class or outside of class, you know, I wasn't uh, probably the best at going to class, um, but I was always very passionate about finance and real estate, mainly focused on hospitality and just, you know, becoming a voracious reader. About every aspect of, of that, and, and and talking and networking with with Cornell alums to understand how they, you know, were able to get to where they where they were, uh, and also you know look for ways where I can you know find an in in order to get into to finance and real estate, which is what I thought I, I was going to do uh, for for my career until I, I graduated, and then um, you know graduated in December of 07 and uh, started in. Uh, uh, real estate securitization at Merrill Lynch at the time during the financial crisis in 08. And so basically the, the financial world was ending at that time. So probably not the best time to, to be in the uh, in the industry.
0: Hey, the same can be said for people that have wanted to start in sports over the last 15. Years. <laughs> that's, that's true.
1: I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll say, listen, I learned more during those three years or four years, three to four years in finance um, and going through. You, you know, such a a tough time in the economy, and for lots of people that were without jobs. Um, you know, I, I really learned a lot uh, during that time. And had you enjoyed the opportunity at Merrill Lynch? Yeah. So um, I, I, I can't say I enjoyed uh, what I was doing. What What I did enjoy was the relationship management. Uh, meeting with clients, understanding their views in, in finance. Um, but I, I realized at a young age in, you know, or I guess a young professional, um, it's not really where I wanted to be. And, and you know, that was, you know, certainly post the, the tech bubble in 2000. But there's still a lot of early stage uh, tech companies that were really changing the world. And um, I ended up getting laid off from from at the time Bank of America who acquired Merrill Lynch in 2011 which to this day was was the best thing that ever happened to me Um, and you know really set kind of the the stage for the next you know part of my my career.
0: And that being said what would you say you know how did that role prepare you for what comes next?
1: Yeah so I mean I think uh, that was a role where we were calling clients, hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers that didn't really have time to talk to you. uh, And you were trying to get their attention, um, you know, every morning between 730 a.m. and and market open at 930 a.m. or, you know, probably 7 a.m. and 930. And and so making those calls, trying to, you know, get your point across in three seconds before they hang up uh, was really, really challenging, but also taught me a lot about, you know, how to be concise the right things you know to get in front of um you know the right people at the right time and and ultimately um learning more about businesses and and how they were built and also what they you know were able to accomplish with you know various forms of capital and and financing and things along those lines so um while I didn't enjoy the role I did enjoy learning about the businesses that we were taking to market and IPOs uh, and that we we're putting in front of clients. Um, and I really learned a ton about building a business. And so, you know, for that, it was certainly in, in, invaluable.
0: And at what point then did you, during that opportunity, did it really pique your interest to start a ticket pricing company model? You
1: know? Yeah, so um, I, I I sat next to this gentleman, Peter Sauer, who uh, unfortunately uh, passed away in 2012. Um, but we, you know, he, the the first thing he said to me is, Hey, Jonathan, you know, you should buy Ole Miss football tickets. And at that time, uh, I really, you know, was focused on my job and building a career, but it sounded like a good idea. And, you know, he said, I could make money. And I said, sure, why not? Let's test it. And so this was back in 2009. And then from there it was, you know, other college football teams and it was continuing to just invest. And at that point, it was, it was really basic. It was let's, let's buy low and, and sell high, right? You know, StubHub was in the early stages. Uh, you know, other secondary market platforms weren't that developed at the time. And so it was really, you know, building a more of a hobby alongside of my, my current job. But also, again, throwing myself into a business and trying to understand every aspect of it and starting to build relationships with, with colleges and universities, but still it was very, very early stage at, at that point. And I didn't really know what it would become. And how was it, you know,
0: building that while still managing full-time roles you know, that transition into the tech space at that point?
1: Um, yeah. So uh, while I don't think that attributed to my, uh, to, to getting laid off, you know, I, I certainly wasn't as focused on my, my role at Merrill Lynch as I was on, you know, the opportunities in the ticketing space. Uh, That said, you know, once that did happen, uh, I I knew right where I wanted to be and it was certainly in technology. You could see the growth trajectory those companies were on. Those were the companies we were taking to market and IPOs uh, during my time at at Merrill Lynch Bank of America. And and so um, I think understanding that that's where I wanted to be and I spent some time out in Silicon Valley uh, with clients. And, and and I think, you know, I, I knew where I wanted to end up, uh, had a few interviews with LinkedIn and ended up landing a, a role in sales there. I also felt like, um, you know, the solutions based selling that I would learn at LinkedIn was going to be extremely beneficial down the road in my career based on, on whatever I, I decided to do. So I ended up going to, to LinkedIn and um, while still building uh, my, my business, you know, Dynamic Pricing Partners.
0: And, you know, both that LinkedIn, and then I know you transitioned over to Box for a little bit. You know, what were the big pieces outside of Solution Selling? What helped you kind of speed up into growth mode of your business?
1: Yeah, so I think um, at that point, I realized it wasn't, the role in finance that I I didn't enjoy. And it wasn't my role at LinkedIn that I didn't enjoy. It was really that I just wanted to build my own thing and spend all my time and efforts on building my own thing. So that said, I still knew that I needed to develop uh, sales skills more effectively. And I was more of a relationship manager at LinkedIn. I was promoted and then ultimately wanted to get into a new business role. They didn't have any open at LinkedIn at the time. So I left and went to, to Box who was uh, at an even earlier stage than when I joined LinkedIn, LinkedIn, learned a ton, had a great manager at the time. Uh, Ken and uh, you know, taught me a lot about selling and really learned how to ultimately um, help people understand, um, you know, what was, what was important to them and, and what would drive value for their business going forward. So that said though, I knew, when I joined that, that was still probably a short-term solution until I could get dynamic pricing partners to a place where it was generating enough income. And I could leave that and, and, and do that full time. And so that was in, in 2014. Um, I've never really mentioned this story probably to anybody, but uh, I, I basically had a 100 day countdown until the day my stock would vest at box. And once that day Uh, arrived, I I gave my notice and uh, went, you know, headfirst into building out uh, the business that that, you know, today is known as dynamic pricing partners.
0: So you have this great model in dynamic pricing partners, you know, working with over 75 colleges building up programs now in pro sports and live entertainment. You know, can you tell us a little bit more about the company and how it brings value to these properties?
1: yeah so um really, you know, from 2014 to 2017, I didn't have uh, any employees 2017 before the birth of my daughter hired, hired my first employee, Joe, who's still uh, with us today, and then you know added uh, many more great people along the way. but ultimately our 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 goal is to maximize revenue and attendance for our partners. So we want to help them optimize pricing not only on the secondary market but also on the primary to make sure that they have the right product mix, that they they have the right ultimately um, price points to attract uh, consumers, but also knowing that price is not always the lever that you need to adjust uh, and, and helping them find that point. You know, For example, um, during the pandemic, we haven't seen price drive demand as, as much as it, as it has before. It's really been more of a function of, does a fan wanna attend an event or not? And it doesn't matter what the price is, they're either gonna go or they're not gonna go. And so really optimizing our technology uh, to integrate with, with their platforms uh, so that we can distribute inventory across multiple channels. So across StubHub, you know, Vivid Seat, all Ticketmaster, all the major ticketing platforms, and making sure that they have inventory. Uh, wherever fans go to buy tickets. You know, we see nowadays fans are going to the secondary market before they're going to the primary. So if we can have a really, um, you know, strong, holistic solution that can blend uh, pricing and distribution, both the primary and the secondary, uh, they're going to capture customers and fans wherever they are. And that's really our goal. So if we could focus on driving revenue and attendance for our partners, but then also making sure that we're not giving up revenue. We're not, you know, pricing tickets too low or, or, or they're not selling to to fans that are going to price tickets or resell them too low on the secondary. Um, we can really drive more revenue and also uphold the, the brand integrity and value for that, that college and university. And
0: why do you think it is that um, people are training themselves to go to the secondary first?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, all of those distribution channels, you know, as I mentioned, Subhub, Vivid, SeatGeek, they, they've all built really strong marketing automation and platforms to where, th- and they have a lot of money to spend on, on marketing to acquire the customer. And so fans are just used to buying tickets there. Um, you know, many times we'll sell tickets above face value on the secondary, uh, and there's still inventory available on that team's website. And so I think fans are loyal uh, they don't like change. And if they're buying a ticket, you know, where you are bred in South Florida, or where I am in, in the Northeast, you know, maybe they're always going to StubHub and it's what they know. And so they're comfortable. And so I think, you know, as those, those distribution channels continue to market, continue to acquire customers, I think it's going to continue to grow in this space. And then it's, you know, can a team work with the right partner, to make sure they're getting that customer data, to make sure they're helping that fan have an amazing experience uh, while they're at the venue, even if they didn't purchase a ticket from them directly.
0: I guess the other thing thinking about it now is a lot of the tickets now are transferable. It's also helping build up the databases of the primary teams by
1: the secondary
0: selling as well.
1: Yeah, from a lead generation standpoint, we've been able to generate thousands of leads for our partners in order to turn those, uh, you know, people or fans into season ticket holders, mini plan holders, etc. And that's been extremely valuable. If you think about it, uh, many teams have gone, you know, at, you know, 18 months, maybe two years without being able to have fans in their building by the time we get to this fall. And so they've, they've missed a, a year plus of new lead generation. And so it's been challenging. And so how can we help them continue to build that out? And so if a fan doesn't renew, ultimately they have the pipeline to to support that. The other side of that is how can we provide value back to the season ticket holder, stabilize the secondary market? So if a, a, a fan buys a season ticket, doesn't want to go to certain games, they can ultimately resell that ticket on the secondary and they'll still have value for it. And so you continue to build that season ticket hold, holder uh, value proposition, not just with benefits while they're at the stadium, but benefits, you know, if they can't make it into the stadium or arena as well.
0: And, um, you know, we talk about the value that this provides, but, you know, who's an ideal client for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, listen, we work with partners of, of all sizes and all performance levels, you know, you know, national champions, uh, you know, or teams that have won national championships and also teams that ha- have never won national championships. So I think right now, every single team would be a great fit for our solution. Um, making sure that inventories across all channels, if they're in a situation where inventory is going to sell out, making sure we can help them optimize yield and drive more revenue. You know, at the end of the day, um, this is, you know, tickets are a lot like, you uh, uh, you know fruit on the shelves at a grocery store right it's perishable when it expires you know or when it when it gets moldy you can never sell it again and so when a ticket you know um when when a a game kicks off you know you're not gonna be able to sell that ticket or that seat again so you want to extract as much revenue as possible that said while still optimizing for, for fans or butts in seats you know, for your particular stadium or event. And so um, we'll work with you know, uh, you know, any, any partner that needs help or assistance from a revenue optimization standpoint, from an attendance standpoint or marketing standpoint as well, uh, we can certainly drive value for.
0: And uh, we all know sports, right? But as we come out of what we've gone through the past 15 to 18 months, how do you see the company developing relationships and growing in the live event and concert space?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think we're going to continue to build out our integration platform with the primary ticketing companies out there. Uh, and I think as we do that, I think there's going to be a lot of a lot of opportunity for us to to immerse ourselves more so in, you know, music, entertainment, theater, etc., as those start to reopen you know broadway's coming back september 14th full capacity very excited about that uh and i think you know with that opportunity we're ultimately going to be able to help those you know those theaters those music festivals drive more fans but also drive more revenue and attendance as as well
0: and um you know, I know recently you also uh, got acquired by Elevate Sports Ventures. You know, which is a huge opportunity for you to both grow together. How did that conversation come about?
1: Yeah, so um, I've known uh, Thomas Bernstein from my days at Cornell, who introduced me to to Al uh, Al Guido, who's the CEO of Elevate. And um, you know, we've we've just had had multiple discussions, uh, you know, over the last few months, and and saw that with our position in the, the college space and Elevate's position in the, in the professional sports uh, and entertainment space, along with the, the major verticals that, that Elevate offers and, and business lines, you know, we've always thought of ourselves as more than just a ticketing company. When we're talking with partners, we want to understand their fan their engagement process, their marketing process, every aspect of, of how we can help uh, drive more revenue for them. And now we can also offer those services to to our collegiate partners, you know, in the same way that Elevate can now offer dynamic pricing partners services to their professional uh, clients. So it's really been um, an amazing experience so far. I think, you know, we're about two months into it and we continue to grow and bring on new clients, um, you know, very, very rapidly here and, and, and are setting, you know, ourselves up uh, is, you know, as well as the, the partner to ultimately drive, uh, more revenue, you know, as we move into the, the, you know, summer and, and fall.
0: And how has a lot of both, you know, yours and Elevate's clients now, you know, preparing for full capacity in the fall, how has that kept you busy?
1: Uh, it's kept me very busy. My calendar is now extremely full, which is, which has been, been great. Uh, cause I remember, uh, probably the same time last year when, when our calendars, you know, not just mine, but really everybody's wasn't that full uh, as we were in the early parts of COVID. So it's really been a, an amazing feeling and experience. And it also tough to remember what 2019 was like because it's, it's, it's been so long. And so I think as we're coming out of COVID, as we're helping our partners, you know, fill their stadiums and arenas, helping them price, helping them understand their fan a little more effectively, um, I think we're, you know, all set up for a, a massive opportunity uh, and a, an amazing um, experience for, for people because I don't think anybody wants to, to go backwards. And so providing a great fan experience, providing an affordable ticket uh, while still, you know, focusing on, on making sure you're not giving up too much revenue uh, will allow uh, you know, many fans to to come back to the stadiums and arenas and have an amazing experience, which is is much different than than just watching the game or or concert at home. And so I think people want that experience. We're seeing it right now. Mm-hmm. NFL schedule release was last night. We saw it there. We've continued to see strong college football sales, uh, certainly starting um, you know on track for better than than 2019. And so I think we're gonna to continue to see that. The CDC announced, uh, you know, masks aren't required indoors uh, this afternoon as well. Again, I think all positive signs. That said, um, I still have this, you know, little bit of hesitancy in the back of my mind based on, you know, what what happened over the last year, you know, as far as what can go wrong. Um, try not to focus on that and just focus on, on all the positivity that, that we're seeing right now. Um, you know across the the news cycle
0: i think the next 60 90 days gonna be a little bit of an adjustment for the sports that are in play or some of the concepts right. we are still trying to figure out if they're going out but like right now as of september 1 right now everything uh, fingers crossed looks back to normal
1: yeah i mean you know i think like i said if, if you have broadway and and i don't know red if you've been to you know uh Richard Rodgers Theater or any of these small theaters here in New York City, you know, you are crammed in. And so if you have, you know, that type of experience, full capacity beginning September 14th, it's hard to argue that everything else won't be full capacity. Like you said, by Labor Day, or probably before even Labor Day uh, as we move into, you know, Q3, Q4.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I'm thinking about going to see Beetlejuice. I went to the Winter Garden Theater like you're talking about, you know, before the sure. Now it's been two years and it's almost like hard to even remember what that was, but people know about these experiences and they're ready to like live. Right.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I was just out in, in Arizona and it was great to, to be around people again and to, you know, have, have, you know, some, some lunches and, and, and client, uh, dinners and, and events. And it's, um, I, you know, I, I think everybody's ready to, to get back to it.
0: That's great. So uh, congrats on the recent partnership with ING Learfield. I know that's what maybe a week or two strong right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we announced that last Monday um, and, you know, uh, again, really positive momentum for, for, for elevate uh, going forward. I think that uh, again, you know, as, as we continue to uh, cement our position in the college space and continue to invest Uh, alongside of our our college partners. Um, Now we can offer, uh, you know, so many more services to our partners through the the relationship with Learfield, the access to data, the access to to be able to to integrate fan base and and the analytics platforms into our systems, I think will really drive a ton of value for our partners going forward. And then also, you know, we can now add services to, to Learfield partners that, you know previously they might not have had access to and I think we're, we're, we're both um, really excited of, of what we can build together
0: so you know with your dynamic background and, and what you've accomplished now you know you know transitioning from finance into the sports world you know what advice would you give to those you know kind of up and coming and trying to figure out their passion
1: yeah so I mean I I, I think listen I, I think you know I have a really unique background Going from culinary school to Cornell to finance to tech to, to building this alongside, right? And so, I think the the moral of that story is um, it's important to always stay passionate about sports if if you are, and even if you're you're at another, um, you know, if you're working in another industry, uh, there's a lot of crossover and there's a lot of value that sports drives, you know, for for so many different people. And if you want to find your way into sports, you certainly can whether it's through starting your own company, whether it's working, you know, in kind of a non-traditional area, maybe building a tech company that can, that can help uh, sports teams, colleges, universities, you know, do something more effectively. Um, I don't think it has to be a traditional, you know, I'm going to go work for a team type role. There's still so many roles that you can be in around sports, adding value. And I think um, being open-minded about those is, is really important. So to, any young professional out there that's you know that that's listening and you know, maybe it's tough to get into a, a traditional sports team role right now. I think there's so many other avenues you can go. You know, if you wanted to work at Google, there's you know a sports vertical there, right? So you can always find an opportunity in sports, and it doesn't have to be with you know a professional team, a college or university as well. I think there's a lot of opportunities to, to make an impact in sports. Um, you know, and I, am sure, you know, the WNBA, um, just, uh, I think, um, their, their multimedia rights were, or their TV rights were just signed, I think with Amazon. And so, right. Amazon probably has a sports vertical now. So sports, uh, finds itself in really every company that's out there, whether it's from them buying tickets to entertain clients or from them you know, buying a sponsorship, you know, there's definitely an opportunity to, to be involved in sports and it doesn't have to be your, your traditional uh, role.
0: That's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat today and, and, you know, talk about your story and I look forward to speaking with you soon.
1: Yeah. Thanks Brett. Really appreciate you having me and, and uh, looking forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks for listening to the sports equity podcast, where we discuss the value that sports brings to business. Follow us for new episodes on a weekly basis. See you next time.